I ask you to turn to Psalm 85. Psalm 85. I'm going to comment much on this. I don't want to read it. And get a free grace broadcaster this week on the subject of revival. So I thought it might be good to read through some of these um, little articles. They're not, most of them aren't very long. Some are a little bit longer than others, but not because they're too bad. So, if they are, we'll just break it in half. But the first is about three pages, so. But anyway, the guy goes through and defines it and motives for it, preparation, prayer for the Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, solemn pleadings for revival, the men God uses in revival, preaching for revival, crucial doctrine in revival, and the effect of revival. So, probably might be good to consider that subject again, but in Psalm 85, I want to read as we begin tonight, and this psalm speaks of revival and gives some background to this request from the psalmist the chief musician a psalm for the sons of Korah verse 1 Lord thou hast been favorable unto thy land thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people Thou hast covered all their sin, Selah. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from thy, the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God, of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again? that thy people may rejoice in thee. Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints, but let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him, and shall set us in the way of his steps. Amen. And may God will add his blessing to the public reading of his word. <clears throat> Just notice there, before we read this first selection, though, in the text, the psalmist is looking back to a better time. Looking back to, Thou hast been favorable. Thou hast brought back the captivity. Thou hast forgiven. Thou hast covered. 
Verse 3, Thou hast taken away. Thou hast turned from the fierceness. And then he pleaded with the Lord for the current state of things. The current state of the church and of the believers. So we'll look then here tonight. I want to read you the first article. What is what is revival? And Horatius Bonner wrote this, and it was written in 1860 from a book called Authentic Records of Revival, now in progress in the United Kingdom. And it was 1860, so they had at that time. Revival in the United Kingdom. He references some of these things, but he wants to answer the question what is revival? And he has a long footnote, not him, but the editor here, because Martin Lloyd Jones, of course, was not around in 1860. Um, Let me just read that footnote first, because in the first sentence, it's basically saying the same thing as. Mr. Bonner, but I thought it might be good to read that as well. He says, What is revival? We can define it as a period of unusual blessing and activity in the life of the Christian church. Primarily, of course, and by definition, a revival is something that happens first in the church and amongst Christian people, amongst believers. That, I repeat, is true by definition. It is revival. Something is revived. And when you say that you say that, you mean that there is something present that has life. But the life was beginning to wane, to droop, and had become almost more bound. And some people said that it is dead, that it is finished, because they could not see much sign of life and activity. Revival means awakening, stimulating life, bringing it to the surface again. It happens primarily in the church of God amongst believing people. And it is only secondly something that affects those that are outside also. Now this is the most important point because this definition helps us to differentiate once and for all between revival and the evangelistic campaign. End of quote. It's in his book on revival. Maybe especially going and to make it clear you have a lot of things called revivals. The church is holding a revival. Um, what they mean is they're doing evangelistic work. So let's now listen to Mr. Bonner for a minute here or two. He says, What is revival? Strictly speaking, it is the restoration of life that has been lost. And in this sense, it applies only to the church of God. But used in the more common acceptation, it is the turning of multitudes to God. As conversion is the turning of a soul to God, so a revival is a repetition of this same spiritual process in the case of thousands. It is conversion upon a large scale. It is what occurred under the apostles at Pentecost, when 3,000 were converted under one sermon. It is what took place at Corinth, Thessalonica, and Ephesus, when, under the preaching of the apostles, Multitudes believed and turned to the Lord. This is what we mean by a revival. As far as it corresponds with these scriptural scenes, as far as it is right 
we defend it. As far as it departs from scriptural precedent or is inconsistent with scriptural rule, we do not defend it. Let the opponents of revivals meet us here. We are willing to apply this test, are they? It is an equitable and satisfactory one. They need not fear it if it is truth they seek. We can suppose the existence of honest objections to revivals. If they produce immorality, they sow sedition, foster licentiousness, or are the hotbeds of hypocrisy, then are they worthy of condemnation. But are they such? Have they brought forth these fruits of evil? Have they made men bad citizens, bad masters, bad parents, bad children? Have they turned sober men into drunkards, chaste men into lewd, peaceable men into riotous, reverential men into blasphemers, loyal men into seditious? Are they crowding or are they thinning our jails? Are they filling or emptying our bars? Are they exciting or are they allying, allaying party spirit? Are they increasing or are they diminishing the calendar of crimes and criminals? <coughs> Let us answer these questions by citing a few statements. Party spirit has ceased wherever revival has come. And enemies have embraced each other. So that a popish judge, doesn't mean he's a judicial judge, but just one judging or one bearing testimony here. Popish judge bears testimony to the wonderful improvement in this respect in his own vicinity. The drunken assemblages at weddings and funerals have not only ceased, but have also been transformed to meetings for praise and prayer. And the brutal scenes of brawling and bloodshed on such occasions are no longer heard of. Thousands of drunkards have become sober. Thousands of blasphemers have turned from their profanity. The whole moral aspect of families, villages, and towns has been altered for the better. Hundreds of Romanists have turned from their superstition. Hundreds of Unitarians have owned the Lord Jesus as God. Poor, profligate females have turned from their evil courses. Bars have been shut up and inroads made among those whom we are accustomed to call the masses, such as have not been made by any efforts heretofore. It would appear, or excuse me, it would thus appear that the results of the Irish revivals have been good and not evil, good religiously, morally, socially. Their tendencies are all in the right direction, so that even admitting all that has been said against them, and making full allowance for what are called extravagances, Nay, assuming that there has been a mixture of hypocrisy and deception in some cases, a very large balance remains in their favor. They have diminished crime. They have turned drunkenness into sobriety, dishonesty into honesty, brawling into good neighborhoods, hatred into love. Of bad citizens, they have made good ones. Of bad husbands and wives, they have made good ones. Of bad masters, good ones. Of bad parents, good ones. Of bad children, good ones. And of mere formalists in religion, they have made devout and fervent worshippers. These are the results of what has taken place. By their fruits ye shall know them. Matthew 7.20 Are these the works of Satan? Are these things from beneath or from above? Are they earthly or heavenly? 
If they be Satan's doings, then is his kingdom divided, and he is fighting against himself. Matthew 12.25 It is to be noticed, too, that the really religious men who have visited the scenes are all convinced that the work, of, the work is of God. Their enemies, that is, the enemies of revivals here, are among the irreligious and profane. The popish priests are against them. The barkeepers are against them. The Unitarians are against them. The lovers of pleasure are against them. Yet these are the things that tell so strongly in their favor. Manifestly, the work is of God, not of man or of Satan. God has risen up to do a work in our day worthy of himself, a glorious work in which human instruments are set aside. And the Holy Spirit is the great and indisputable worker. A work like this will not easily be overthrown. It will not be put down by scoffing, nor injured by misrepresentation, nor arrested by the hostility either of formal Protestants or of angry Romanists. Fling your handfuls of sand into the torrent. The enemies of Christ, will these arrest its victorious rush? Cast up embankments on the Nile from Thebes to Alexandria. Will these hinder its overflow? Bring your mighty engines... Engines here, he would mean mechanical devices that assist labor, or especially in war, large um, devices like catapults, battering rams. So that's what he means by engines here. Uh, Bring your mighty engines to bear upon this divine conflagration that is now blazing through Ulster. Will you quench one spark? Send for your Balaams, your lying prophets of the press, ye Balaks of Moab. Place them upon every green mountain from Donegal to Downpatrick and say to them, Come, curse me, Jacob, and come, defy Israel. What can the answer be but, How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? How shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? End of quote. I'm sure he goes on. I don't think Bonner would type a chapter that short, but anyway, that's the, uh, that's the, uh, Quotation selection out of that chapter in that book we mentioned. So as they say, it is a work that begins in the house of God. And Peter says, your judgment begins where? Not in the world, but in the house of God. And so does revival. The psalmist is pleading in Psalm 85 that God would draw back again his anger, that he would stop really afflicting them for their sins but asking for mercy and salvation and deliverance is probably the idea there not so much um, justification as that pardon a fatherly pardon and deliverance from the sins and from the despondency that the uh, people of God found themselves in in the psalmist today that his fatherly anger would be put away, not his judgmental, the sense of the condemning wrath and anger of God. And so we have that, and it spills over as we see, as he said in the Apostles' Day, and in other days as well. I think we'll stop there for tonight on that.